Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Just after midnight on November 16, 1999, third-year NFL wide receiver Ray Carruth drove down a dark stretch of road in Charlotte, North Carolina. Following him in her own car was Sharika Adams, Carruth's on-again, off-again girlfriend. The two of them hadn't been in a real relationship for a long time, but were inexorably tied together. Adams was eight months pregnant. The baby was a source of massive tension between Carruth and Adams. He wanted her to have an abortion, but she refused. Carruth checked his rearview mirror to make sure Adams was still driving behind him. Then he looked around and scoped out the road ahead. There were no other cars in sight, perfect for what he had planned. As he approached a dip in the road, Carruth put his foot on the brake pedal. Carruth came to a halt in the middle of the road. Adam's BMW screeched to a stop behind him, swerving slightly to the left to avoid rear-ending him. Carruth watched and waited. The next moment, another car came flying in, pulling to a stop beside Adam's car. The backseat window rolled down. A gloved hand holding a gun emerged from inside. Ray Carruth watched from his rear view as the gunshot shattered the driver's side windows of Adams' car. Adams screamed, then was silent. After the final shot was fired, Carruth exhaled. His plan had worked. Sharika Adams was dead. He shifted his car into drive and sped off into the night. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. 
You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're discussing Ray Carruth, the 25-year-old Carolina Panthers wide receiver who, in 1999, destroyed his career and life when he paid a hitman to murder his pregnant girlfriend. This week, we'll explore Carruth's rise to stardom in the NFL and his sudden murderous turn. Next week, we'll cover the fallout of the killing. Ray Lamar Theotis Wiggins was born on January 20th, 1974 in Sacramento, California. His parents were not married, and Ray took his stepfather's last name, Carruth. Carruth showed interest and ability in sports from a very young age. He constantly played neighborhood backyard baseball and football with his uncles and cousins. Carruth was the speedster, a base-stealing threat in baseball, and an impossible-to-catch receiver in football. His neighborhood, Oak Park, was a rough area of the city, and Carruth was surrounded by drugs and crime. In response to his surroundings, Carruth went the other direction. He refused to drink, smoke, or use drugs of any kind. Instead, he focused almost solely on sports. In high school, Carruth joined the football team as soon as he could, and immediately impressed the varsity coaches with his speed and natural ability. In 1988, 14-year-old Carruth's life was thrown into disarray when his mother and stepfather divorced. His mother struggled to provide for both Carruth and his half-sister, and when she simply couldn't make ends meet, she sent the kids to live with an aunt in Texas. Even when Carruth was back in Sacramento, there was no stability. They moved from house to house, occasionally staying with their extended family if they couldn't afford a place of their own. The constant changes and instability badly affected Carruth, and his grades suffered. However, he still excelled athletically, achieving high honors in basketball, track, and football. He was also an extremely popular teenager and elected prom king twice. At the end of his high school career, he accepted a football scholarship to the University of Colorado in Boulder. Eighteen-year-old Ray Carruth entered his freshman year at CU Boulder and immediately enjoyed the perks that came with being a high-profile football player. While he still didn't drink, smoke, or party much, there was one aspect of college life that Carruth became consumed by. Girls. Carruth was charismatic, quick-witted, and charming, and never lacked for female attention. But he also had a darker side to his personality. It was said he could be moody, vindictive, and cruel, and those attributes made it difficult for any romantic relationship to last very long. Nevertheless, Carruth embraced being a ladies' man, juggling multiple girlfriends at once throughout college. He viewed women as a challenge, just as much of a game as the sport he had a scholarship to play. Carruth developed a somewhat callous view of other people, He simply didn't care about others unless they did something for him. On 
On top of his various conquests at school, Carruth also remained involved with some women back in Sacramento and made frequent trips back to see them. During his sophomore year in 1994, he began a relationship with Michelle Wright, a former high school classmate. Michelle eventually became pregnant. Carruth wanted Michelle to have an abortion, telling her that as a college student, he didn't have enough money to support a child. When Michelle chose to keep the baby, Carruth bitterly removed himself from her life. Their son, named Raylondo, was born in late 1994. Carruth had no interest in being a father and avoided returning home to Sacramento. But on the field, Carruth was thriving. He burst out of the gate strong in his first year, setting records for yardage gained by a freshman, and his reputation only increased in the following seasons. By his junior year, he was an All-American and named the team's MVP. Academically and athletically, Carruth had a reputation of being serious and hardworking. He grew to enjoy writing and fostered ambitions of becoming a poet or screenwriter one day after his football career was over. His goals were clear. He wanted to be a star player in the NFL. But more than that, though, as he would later say in an interview, he wanted simply to be famous. In 1996, 22-year-old Carruth firmly established himself as a coveted NFL prospect with a dominant senior year. He scored 10 touchdowns, topped the Big 12 Conference in receiving yards per game, and led his Colorado Buffaloes team to a 10-2 record. After the season, Carruth was elated to be invited to the official NFL Combine in Indianapolis, where he had the opportunity to try out for scouts from all 32 teams. Carruth made a good impression at the Combine. He clocked the fastest 40-yard dash time of any player at 4.17 seconds and did well on both the IQ tests and psychological evaluations. Despite some problems with his athletic profile, at 5 feet 11 inches, he was 4 inches shorter than the average NFL wide receiver, his speed and intangibles led scouts and analysts to predict that Carruth would be a top 15 pick. Being selected that highly meant that Carruth would receive a massive signing bonus. A pick in the first five meant a signing bonus of up to $5 million. When he flew home after the combine, Carruth's confidence was at an all-time high. A spot in the NFL was almost guaranteed. All that was left for him to do was wait to see which team would draft him. But Carruth was bombarded with problems. His mother's house was broken into and burned to the ground by thieves. All of his mother's possessions, including Carruth's childhood pictures and trophies, were lost. Carruth continued working out for NFL teams while dealing with the aftermath of the fire, though his performance was hampered by his mental state. Meanwhile, Michelle Wright sued him for child support. He might not have been able to provide for Raylondo as a college student, but he would be a football star soon. She wanted $3,500 a month to care for their two-year-old son, as well as another $3,500 placed into a trust fund. Carruth fought the lawsuit and managed to lower the child support to $5,500 a month total. More importantly, though, Carruth kept the case quiet out of fear that it would hurt his draft stock. 
Carruth and his family gathered at an aunt's house to watch the draft. While his family were excited and animated, Carruth was quiet and focused. His entire life had led to this moment. The first five picks went by without a wide receiver chosen. Finally, with the seventh pick, the New York Giants selected a wide receiver. But it wasn't Carruth. Carruth's potential signing bonus was dipping with each pick. The 10th pick came and went without Carruth's name being read. Then the 15th pick. Then the 20th pick. After the Eagles selected a defensive end with their 25th pick, Ray Carruth's cell phone rang. On the other end was Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Carolina Panthers. Richardson wanted to know one thing. Did Ray Carruth want to be a member of the Carolina Panthers? Carruth said he did. His family erupted in cheers as he hung up and told them the news. The party turned their attention back to the TV. They watched and celebrated as the NFL commissioner announced that the Carolina Panthers, with the 27th overall pick in the draft, officially selected Ray Carruth. When we come back, Ray Carruth begins his career in the NFL. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. Twenty-two-year-old Ray Carruth had fought his way through a difficult childhood, a rough hometown, and serious personal issues to become a first-round NFL draft pick. It might not have been as high a pick as he would have liked, but the important thing was that he was going to be a professional football player. Carruth was well on his way to achieving his goal of becoming famous. Carruth and his agent negotiated a signing bonus of $1.3 million dollars, on top of a salary of $600,000. It was more than enough to buy his mother a new house and easily pay the court-ordered $5,500 in child support. He also bought his new girlfriend and his girlfriend's mom, Alexis, each. Carruth enjoyed every cent of his newfound wealth. When his spending spree was over, Carruth moved to Charlotte, North Carolina to begin his NFL career. Unlike spending money, playing in the NFL did not come easily for Ray Carruth. The NFL was faster, tougher, and much more difficult than college football. Even more of a difficult transition was locker room culture shock. Carruth was used to the brotherhood of a college team. The older, mostly married players in the NFL treated football as a job and had far less interest in socializing with their teammates. His own reserved personality didn't do him any favors either, and he gained a reputation as a loner in the locker room. When he did go out with his teammates, they made fun of him for not drinking. Still, Carruth worked hard on the field and impressed his teammates and coaches with his talent and skill. On August 31st, 1997, the Carolina Panthers hosted the Washington Redskins for the first game of the season. 
Although he wasn't listed as a starter, it wasn't long before he saw action. Down by a touchdown in the middle of the third quarter, the Panthers' head coach felt like their offense, held to only a field goal in the first half, needed a boost. He sent Ray Carruth onto the field. Carruth was targeted at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Catching a pass for a modest six-yard gain before being tackled, he was exhilarated as he bounced up off the turf and heard the crowd cheering him. He had arrived. Carruth's workload steadily increased as the season went on. He made two catches for 18 yards in the second game, then was rewarded with a starting role and eight receptions in his third game. On the fifth game of the season against the 49ers, Carruth scored the first touchdown of his NFL career. By the final game of the season, Carruth was almost leading the team in receiving yards. During his rookie year, Carruth racked up 44 receptions for 545 yards and four touchdowns. He was nominated for Offensive Rookie of the Year and named to the NFL's All-Rookie Team. Despite his individual successes on the football field, not all was well for his team. The Panthers entered the season as favorites to win the NFC South, but badly underperformed. They ended the season with a disappointing 7-9 record and missed the playoffs. Things weren't well at home either. After the season, Carruth's girlfriend broke up with him after he blatantly cheated on her. He simply didn't seem to care about her or their relationship. After the breakup, Carruth took back the Lexus he gave to his girlfriend's mother. Carruth flaunted his newly single status when he returned to Charlotte to prepare for his second NFL season in the summer of 1998. Along with a new batch of young Panthers players, Carruth became a frequent patron of the local strip clubs and dive bars. One night, while bar hopping with a handful of his teammates, Carruth visited the Diamond Club. There, while his teammates got drinks, Carruth watched the dancers on stage and found himself drawn to one of them. Her name, he would find out later, was Sharika Adams. In June of 1998, 24-year-old Carruth attended a teammate's house party and, by chance, ran into Adams. He took the opportunity to introduce himself and turned on the charm. Adams was instantly taken by Carruth. The two of them split off from the rest of the party. They spent the rest of the day together. That evening, Adams brought Carruth back home to meet her father, which was an extremely unusual move. Her parents took it as a sign that, even after only knowing Carruth for a few hours, Adams was serious about him. They bonded over their respective ambitions, Carruth's to be a star NFL player and Adams to be a real estate agent and investor. After the party, they continued to see each other, but their busy schedules kept them from entering into a full relationship. Carruth had to stay focused on the upcoming football season. Twenty-four-year-old Ray Carruth was in the best shape of his life as the 1998 NFL season began. He was determined to prove that his rookie season wasn't a fluke and establish himself as one of the top receivers in the league. His first game against the Atlanta Falcons, however, began in frustrating fashion. 
with an entire offseason to study game film, the opposing defense was able to effectively shut Carruth down. Unable to get enough separation from the defenders, Carruth only managed three catches for 12 yards. With three minutes left in the first half, Carruth finally managed to spot a gap in the defense and exploit it, getting himself wide open far downfield. Quarterback Kerry Collins saw Carruth and heaved it towards his wide receiver. The pass was slightly overthrown. Carruth extended himself to catch the ball, successfully getting his hands around it and hauling it in. But as he completed the catch, his right foot landed awkwardly on the ground. Carruth felt something pop in his foot and tumbled onto the turf. He held onto the ball for a 47-yard completion, but he'd paid a price. Trainers and coaches ran out to Carruth when they realized what had happened. Carruth couldn't put any weight on his right foot and needed to be helped off the field. The crowd gave him polite applause as trainers brought him back into the tunnel. He was taken into an examination room for x-rays. They confirmed Carruth's worst fears. He had broken a bone in his foot that would keep him out of action for several games. All of his training and preparation for the 1998 season, all his ambition of becoming a star that fall, were destroyed because of one bad step. Because of the brutal physical nature of football, the average wide receiver only lasts three years in the NFL. Most are out of the league by the time they're 26. Carruth was determined not to suffer the same fate as most receivers. He had to get himself back on the field as soon as possible. Carruth spent several weeks with his right foot in a cast and walking boot. He felt so much pressure to play that as soon as he felt ready, he began pushing to get back on the field even though he wasn't fully healed. He didn't want to be seen as obsolete. After missing seven games, Carruth successfully convinced his coaches to let him play for their Week 10 matchup against the 49ers. It was clear to everyone as soon as he took the field that he wasn't ready. He didn't have his same speed, agility, or explosiveness, and he was clearly limping at times. He didn't make a single catch against the 49ers, and afterwards, the team decided to place Carruth on injured reserve. He was done for the year. In many ways, it was the first taste of adversity Carruth had experienced since he left Sacramento to begin college. He hated watching games from the bench, and adding insult to injury, he had to watch his backup, Rocket Ismail, become a star receiver in his absence. Carruth felt alone and forgotten as the 1998 season came to a dull close in December, with the Panthers once again disappointing with a 4-12 record. Focusing on his rehab, Carruth remained in Charlotte through the offseason. With his schedule now opened up, he rekindled his connection with Sharika Adams, and the two began dating seriously. Adams' feelings for Carruth grew very serious very quickly, and her thoughts rapidly went towards settling down and raising a family with him. Unfortunately for Adams, those feelings were not reciprocated. Carruth had no intention of becoming exclusive, and after a few months of dating Adams, his eye wandered toward other women. 
By late March, Carruth had already mentally moved on from Adams and stopped seeing her and taking her calls. Throughout the spring of 1999, Adams kept trying to reach Carruth, but was unsuccessful. By the end of April, her attempts became more urgent. She had something she needed to tell him in person. One unheard message. In mid-May of 1999, Adams asked one of Carruth's friends to pass on a message. This time, she told him exactly what was going on. She was pregnant. Carruth received the message, but chose to ignore it. He didn't call Adams back or send her any sort of reply. She and their baby were out of sight and out of mind as he prepared for the upcoming season. Carruth began seeing another woman, a 19-year-old waitress named Candace Smith, who, like Adams, worked part-time as an exotic dancer. After a few months, Carruth was comfortable enough to take the relationship more seriously and declared that he would be exclusive to Smith. As their relationship progressed, Carruth became more and more anxious about the situation with Sharika Adams. Finally, in early summer, Carruth took Smith out to dinner and confessed about Adams and her pregnancy. He denied that the baby was his, bitterly complained that Adams hadn't been on birth control, and worried about the financial impact another child would have on him. Smith was shocked by Carruth's behavior. She knew that Carruth had a reputation as a womanizer, but the extent and the selfish way Carruth seemed to process the news affected her deeply. After that night, Smith decided to take a step back from her relationship with Carruth. Eventually, Carruth couldn't ignore the pregnancy any longer, and he finally returned Adam's call. Right away, he said he wanted her to have an abortion, but Adams refused. No matter what Carruth said, she was going to keep the baby. His mood grew darker as the NFL season approached. Carruth had no empathy for anyone else, let alone Sharika Adams. He only cared about how she could ruin his life. And he was now beginning to believe that she was an existential threat that could put everything in his life at risk. He needed to do something drastic. When we come back, Ray Carruth takes matters into his own hands by planning a murder. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1999, 25-year-old Ray Carruth knew he was heading into the most important few months of his life. The upcoming NFL season was hugely important for the third-year wide receiver. He was determined to do whatever it took to prove his worth on the team and make a name for himself. The stakes had never been higher. If he didn't perform or failed to stay healthy, his future in the league could be thrown into question. Everything Carruth did was carefully calibrated to increase his potential success and fame. He even went through five different uniform numbers before the 1999 season, before finally settling on number 89, a number that no other famous NFL player had worn. There was one major distraction in Carruth's life that threatened to disrupt his comeback attempt. 
the fact that an ex-girlfriend, 24-year-old Sharika Adams, was pregnant with his child and refused to have an abortion. Carruth believed that the pregnancy threatened everything. As long as Adams insisted on having the baby, Carruth's life and career would be tied to her. By midsummer 1999, he'd made up his mind. He needed the pregnancy to go away, no matter what. And he knew just the man who could make it happen. While living in Charlotte, Carruth had gotten to know handyman and bouncer Van Brett Watkins, nicknamed New York. Watkins was a large, intimidating man with a long rap sheet, convicted of assault, illegal weapons possession, criminal mischief, and grand larceny. He also had a serious anger issue that manifested in extreme violence. He once lit his prison cellmate on fire and stabbed his own brother. He was known to occasionally ferry drugs between Atlanta and Charlotte. He was also known to kill people for money. Watkins claimed that he murdered four people, two in New York, one in Miami, and one in Atlanta. Carruth initially hired Watkins to build a fence. He enjoyed having Watkins around. He felt like a breath of fresh air, different from the NFL coaches and players that Carruth was otherwise surrounded by. Watkins also seemed trustworthy, so Carruth decided to hire him for another job. Carruth paged Watkins and told him they needed to talk urgently. Watkins told Carruth where he was, a U-Haul parking lot, and Carruth arrived within minutes. He'd made up his mind about what he wanted to do, and he didn't want to delay. After making sure they weren't being watched, he told Watkins that he had a problem that he wanted dealt with. Sharika's pregnancy. Watkins was taken aback. He couldn't believe that Carruth was seriously asking him to kill a baby. He asked if Carruth was serious, and he was. Carruth even offered to pay Watkins a down payment beforehand. Watkins didn't have a problem murdering people for money, but his past kills were all men whom he thought deserved it. Hurting an innocent woman and her child was crossing a line, even for Watkins, and he told Carruth that he had reservations. But knowing Carruth's NFL pay, that down payment could be more than Watkins made in a year of doing odd jobs. So he asked to hear more. Carruth told him the whole story and said he was willing to pay a large amount to get rid of the baby. The promise of a big payday was too much for Watkins to ignore, so he said he'd do it for $3,000 plus a $300 retainer. Carruth agreed without negotiating. That was less than he'd have to pay for one month of child support if the baby was born. He and Watkins shook hands. The deal was in place. They drove to a convenience store where Carruth took out $300 from an ATM to pay Watkins his requested retainer. Watkins took the money, still not entirely sure how serious Carruth was about the entire idea. They discussed possible plans based around the idea that Watkins would beat up Sharika Adams, causing a miscarriage. However, the two of them couldn't get around the fact that Sharika would be able to identify her assailant. That problem stumped them. 
As the summer went on, neither Carruth nor Watkins were able to come up with a solution or an alternate plan. In the meantime, to make himself look less suspicious, Carruth made an effort to play the part of an expectant father. He even joined Sharika Adams for doctor's visits and Lamaze classes. Adams had long since given up on her dream of forming a nuclear family with Carruth, but resigned herself to accept however much Carruth chose to be involved and make the best of it. Watkins, meanwhile, did his due diligence. He stalked Adams, getting to know her routine, where she lived, what car she drove, where she usually parked. Carruth was pushing him to get the job done, but he wanted to take his time picking the perfect time and place. And until then, Carruth turned his attention back to football. On September 12, 1999, Ray Carruth finally took the field again for the season opener against the New Orleans Saints. His performance was unremarkable, totaling five catches for 65 yards. It was far from the all-star play Carruth expected from himself. He knew that if he was going to turn his career around, he had to start performing better. He didn't. In the following weeks, Carruth's numbers only got worse. Two catches for 27 yards in the second game and three catches for 35 yards in the third. His performances were also marred by embarrassing dropped catches. His career in the NFL was hanging by a thread. After the fourth game of the season, Carruth officially lost his starting role. On October 17, 1999, the Panthers were in San Francisco for their fifth game of the season. Carruth started the game on the bench, but when he got a chance to enter the game midway through the first quarter, he threw himself into it with as much energy and focus as he could. On his second play of the game, Carruth managed to get free from the defender 13 yards down the field. The quarterback threw the ball to him and he caught it easily, but landed awkwardly once again, this time on his left ankle. Carruth felt a sense of awful deja vu as the trainers helped him off the field and back into the examination room. After examining him, the doctors gave him some good news. It wasn't a broken ankle. However, it was a bad sprain that would keep him out of action for at least a month. Carruth couldn't believe it. Despite his best efforts and hard work, his NFL career was slipping away. And it wasn't even the worst news he received that week. In the days after the injury, Carruth was hit with another blow. He was the victim of a Ponzi scheme. Carruth had invested nearly a million dollars in an associate's business, which turned out to be fraudulent. Once the losses were tallied and Carruth took a closer look at his own finances, he realized he only had $150,000 to his name not even enough to pay off his mortgage. Everything was going wrong for Ray Carruth. He was ashamed and embarrassed by the Ponzi scheme losses, frustrated by his injury, angry at the world. He felt the need to lash out. And there was one person Carruth thought he could blame for many of his problems, Sharika Adams. And in his darker, angrier frame of mind, Carruth's plan warped. He no longer wanted just to make Adams have a miscarriage. He wanted her 
dead. By November 1999, Carruth was tired of Watkins' delays. Adams was now 30 weeks pregnant, and they were running out of time to prevent the baby from being born. In his desperation, Carruth even resorted to threatening Watkins, saying he'd hire someone from Sacramento to kill him if he didn't complete the job. To expedite things, Carruth reached out to another friend named Michael Kennedy, also known as Little Man, who also had a violent criminal history. They had met at a rim shop, a car customization business where Kennedy worked. Carruth saw Kennedy as a kindred spirit who had the same taste in cars. He thought he could trust him, and that if Watkins eventually failed to get the job done, Kennedy would do it. Kennedy, on the other hand, just like being friends with a famous NFL player. On November 15, 1999, Carruth brought Watkins and Kennedy together and told them the plan. Adams was coming to Carruth's house for a date that night. After the date, Carruth and Adams would drive back to Adams' house in separate cars. Once they were somewhere quiet and dark, Carruth would stop his car. When Adams stopped her car, Kennedy and Watkins would pull up beside her and do what they were paid to do. Kennedy was scared and apprehensive. He didn't want to be involved, but he was too scared of what Carruth would do if he said no. He felt like he had no choice, so he agreed to drive the car. He and Watkins went off to buy a gun as Carruth stayed at the house. At 9 p.m., Sharika Adams arrived at Carruth's house. She was unsure why he'd suddenly invited her out on a date, but was willing to try anything to make sure that they were at least on friendly terms when the baby arrived. As soon as she walked through the door, however, her uneasiness returned. Carruth seemed distracted and kept leaving the room to talk on the phone. Eventually, Carruth told Adams they were leaving. She ignored her suspicions and went along with it. Meanwhile, Kennedy and Watkins met up with a friend and paid $100 for a 38 caliber revolver and a box of bullets. Watkins loaded five bullets, then tossed the rest of the ammunition in a storm drain. Kennedy's friend, Stanley Abraham, tagged along for the ride, but had no idea about the evening's agenda. He became increasingly confused as the night wore on. When he found out they were going to commit a murder, he fearfully asked to be driven home, but it was too late. None of the three men in the car really wanted to be there, but all were tied together by money and fear. Fear of Carruth, fear of each other, and fear of the consequences of failing to go through with it. Carruth and Adams met up with another Panthers player and his girlfriend at the theater to see The Bone Collector. After the movie, Carruth called Kennedy as they left the theater. They were headed home. Get ready. Just after midnight, Carruth and Adams returned to his house. He told Adams that he wanted to stay the night at her place. That surprised her a little, but she agreed to have him over, so they got into their respective cars to drive there. Kennedy and Watkins watched as Carruth and Adams' cars pulled out from the driveway. They followed as Watkins put on gloves and a ski mask and loaded the gun. Abraham sat in the back seat, terrified. Carruth led Adams onto a stretch of road that was dark and isolated at that time of night. 
As he reached a dip in the road, Carruth's car came to an abrupt stop. Adam slammed on the brakes to avoid hitting him. Kennedy pulled up alongside Adam's car. In the back seat, Watkins rolled down the windows. He shoved his hand through and roughly aimed the gun at the driver's side window of Adam's car. Five shots rang out. Carruth quickly drove off while Kennedy and Watkins followed the rest of the plan. Step one was making sure that Adams was dead. They both looked into the car and saw her motionless body and were convinced. The second part of the plan was to steal her purse to make it look like a robbery. But neither Kennedy nor Watkins wanted to get any closer to Adams' dead body. So they ignored step two and fled the scene. However, they'd also failed step one. Sharika Adams was not dead. As soon as Kennedy's car left, Adams pulled herself up, barely able to breathe through the blood, and began driving. She had been hit four times, three times in the back, one in the neck, but managed to grab her cell phone and call 911. Struggling to speak, Adams told the police where she was. She was eight months pregnant, and she'd been shot. A paramedic got on the phone with Adams. He asked her exactly what happened. When she told him, the paramedic then asked her who she was with when she was attacked. She said, Ray Carruth, number 89 on the Panthers. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Ray Carruth's story. We'll hear the aftermath of the shooting and how Carruth was eventually brought to justice. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 